Hey everyone, it's Margaret here, just for a second, to introduce this slightly unusual episode. The other hosts are off this week, so there won't be a roundtable news discussion, but we do have an interview with the truly fantastic Richard Riaz Yoder. So enjoy that for now, and then be sure to come back next week for another episode in our regular format. dance friends. I am very happy to be here now with the multi-talented Richard Riaz Yoder. Hi, Richard. Thank you so much for joining. Of course. Thanks for having me. So good to have you here. Richard is a gifted dancer and teacher with a BFA in dance performance from Oklahoma City University. He is a Broadway veteran. His resume includes Hello, Dolly, Shuffle Along, On the 20th Century, and Irving Berlin's White Christmas, you know, shows you might have heard of. He is now an associate producer on Share the Floor, a new series that offers free virtual classes and interviews with BIPOC choreographers, which I'm really excited to hear more about. Um, But actually, to get started, after my super abbreviated version of your bio. Can you tell our listeners what you'd like them to know about yourself and about your relationship with dance? So uh, my relationship with dance started much later than uh, some other people. You know, some people start when they're like two or three, taking little shuffles, tap classes and things like that. I did not have that luxury. I started when I was 17. So I took my, I started dancing in show choir. I had like purple sequence vest. I think back about it, it's hilarious. But I used to, uh, that was my kind of introduction to dance and musicals were my introduction to dance. And uh, at one point I started to get better. My mom was like, let's actually send you to an actual dance school. And so I started taking classes and I was, it was an interesting uh, studio because it was geared more towards adults. So I was the youngest by like 10 years Mm. in the class. And so it was wonderful to be around all of these mature women and men that were so in tune with their bodies. And it gave me so much to look at, but then also aspire to be. So then I went to Oklahoma City University and I was a dance performance major there. I was at the bottom level of everything. I had to do like basic ballet because I just had no ability to do, or I didn't have the um, training to do anything. So I went there and took as much as I could, as much dance as I could, focus the whole time, or as much as I could. And then after that, I went and did a tour of 42nd Street in Asia. That was my first professional gig. I was like, so green when I think about it. I, yeah, I was so green. Uh, and then after that, came back to the States. I did, uh, I got my equity card at North Shore Music Theater. And then a year later, I was in Irving Berlin's White Christmas. And then the rest is history. It took off from there. Yeah. I, I love that you started, even as a late starter, as the youngest person in your class, surrounded by these mature dancers who are completely at ease with their own bodies. I wonder how the dance world would be different if more dancers started out that way, instead of like the typical high pressure, like everybody's striving, everybody's trying to figure themselves out environment. Yeah. And it was, it was so interesting because they, they did it for fun. Right. They did it for fun. It wasn't like, just like you're saying in these high pressure situations where it's everybody 
on the same level, trying to be better than other people. Nobody was trying to be better than anybody else. There was no competition. It was the basically a bunch of moms and just like people that were like used to dance way back in the day. And they're like, I just want to connect with it again. Yeah. I want to um, be with people that are like me again. Because, you know, like performers and actors, dancers, singers, they have a different energy about them. Nothing wrong with other people's energy, but dancers, that energy is infectious. And the second music starts playing, dancers come alive. And so to not be around that as much, and then all of a sudden be in this class where we're all jiving together and everything, oh, it was heavy. You found your people. Um, yeah, I found my people, and I didn't even know that those were my people. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, I'm this young gay kid and around all of these fierce women. And I was like, what is my life right now? I was in heaven. I'm home. I love that. Yeah. Um, so I'd like to, to get started by discussing Share the Floor, because there's so much excitement around this in the dance world, and for good for good reason. Good. Um, yeah. Can you talk about how you got involved with the project and what its central mission is? So uh, Bossy Mom Point, she was the main uh, person. She's the host of the show right now. And uh, her, Christopher Gatelli, and Phila Duca, in the, I think it was the summer, it was last summer, uh, Chris was feeling like he wanted to do something else. He wanted to do something more to help people uh, of color, BIPOC people. He wanted to showcase them more. He wanted to give them a voice more. He wanted to do something that, so he could give back to people. And uh, this started. And so it was him, Bossy, and Phil Aduka. And then Bossy asked me to be one of the... Um, people that she interviews and to potentially give a class to. Now this happened back in, I think like September or October. So we did an interview during that time. So it was oh, that far back. Yeah. Me, her and Savion Glover. So it was everybody kind of uh, interviews one of their mentors. That's how it started. And so it was Vasti interviewed Savion and then she interviewed me. And then me and Savion did an interview together. All of us did one together. And uh, so that's how it started. And then it kind of just went away for a bit because, you know, things were starting to open up a little bit and life happens. Uh, and then like two or three weeks ago, they're like, okay, this is a go. Wow. And I was like, oh, we're doing this like, we're doing this like next week. And so, um, and so they had me come on and they asked me to also be an associate producer and run our social media. So, and be our first teacher. So I was like the guinea pig teacher to make sure we could figure everything out. And then also I'm like running their social media and working with them as a associate producer, which has been an eye-opening and learning experience. You're, so you're involved on many different levels. That's so cool. Um, can you talk about teaching that first Share the Floor class, which was back on International Dance Day? It was kind of a great moment. Yeah, it was uh, because that was one of the first times I've been able to be in the studio with a bunch of friends for a while. So, yeah. and just to see Chris there, I was having so much fun. To be in that room, it was uh, it was just electric. It was a little bit last minute, so uh, we were kind of rushing to kind of get things together. But we knew we wanted to do this on International Dance Day. So uh, I actually saw the interview portion of the class for the first time with everybody else. Oh, because so, that airs right before the class starts. Yeah, so it yeah. airs right before the class. It was so nice to see that and then to give the class I modeled my class after uh, one of the great tap dance legends, Jenny Lagong. And so Jenny Lagong didn't really get her dues because of racism and segregation and even the music, uh, the movie musical industry. 
So my class was dedicated to her. So I took some of her steps, remixed them, and I put the style that she kind of has in her dancing, and I put it into the class. And so I was able to give them a little history lesson as well, which I think is important because we're sharing the floor, but we're also sharing the experiences of everybody that came before us. And we're also giving thanks to those people. And I love that idea of integrating dance history in that very complete and organic way. It's not like you like give a lecture at the beginning of class and then we have class. It's no, I'm teaching you through my body, from my body, her body to your body to the students' bodies. Exactly. Yeah. I'm not very good at giving speeches and all that stuff. So I'm like, listen, I'm just going to speak from the heart. And my heart is telling me that we need to do this class in honor of Jenny. Robert Reed, who is my teacher at Oklahoma City University, he always said, respect the dance. He always said, respect the dance. And uh, tap is a dance form that doesn't truly get its dues as well, I believe, even mm -hmm. though it's one of the most American art forms. And it was through, mainly through black people that mm -hmm. this, uh, the tap dance as we know it came to fruition. So always giving back to tap dance because one of the things that I think about as much as I possibly can. Yeah, yep, respect for this history, the often forgotten history of artists of color in dance. It's, yeah. And that that is foundational in tap. I actually think that tap does a better job a lot of the time at recognizing its mm -hmm. its own history and and teaching that to the next generations. Um, but I love that that's that's built into your to your approach. Yeah. Um, so you have been for a while. You've been a vocal advocate for equity and inclusion in dance, and that of course ties into Share the Floor's work. Um, it's also particularly noteworthy because you're involved in these two parts of the dance world that aren't exactly known for their diversity. That's Broadway and then also the competition dance scene. Yeah. So first of all, can you talk a little about the ways that racism shapes and warps the professional musical theater world as you've experienced it? So the way that it shapes and warps, I think that you said that perfectly. The way that it shapes and warps is uh, it gives people of color the idea that they shouldn't be there or that they are not traditional. And that's what that's one of the things I have a problem with non-traditional casting. It makes it seem as though it's going out of the box to ever cast anybody of color in anything. Even though if we're really talking about theater, we're creating a world on stage. So the idea that it has to adhere to some strange idea of whiteness doesn't make any sense. Because how often are people literally tap dancing and singing mm -hmm. during their everyday life? Unless you're a dancer, so that's not going to happen. So, uh, so that's one of the things that it does. It makes us think that we are not able to be in that space. And that we are not welcome in that particular space. And that we should be lucky to be there. And another thing it does is that I've seen this with so many different people, is that we have white counterparts that soar and rise so quickly, even though the skill set of some of the other people that they are quote unquote equal with are actually greater. And we see this happen. And then it also puts us in a mind frame of maybe I'm not as talented as I thought. Mm -hmm. Maybe there's something, yeah, maybe there's something wrong with me. And so that's one of the things I think a lot of people have had to deal with. And what we have to do is we have to stand up and say, no, I am going to go full throttle with my, my skill set, my abilities, 
And if I don't look like that person, then I'm like breaking a mold. And that's the other thing. It's like, there's always like the first person to do this, the first person to do that. How on earth is it at this point right now in history and music theater that we have so many firsts when somebody of color wins a Tony or somebody of color wins any of these awards out there. So that's kind of how I feel where it comes from in music theater. And in the competition dance world, yeah. the, I, was, I was looking at, I was judging this past weekend, and I was looking at how white everything is. Mm-hmm. Everything from the studio owners to the dancers to uh, the competition owners to, I mean, pretty much everybody. If you are a person of color and you're going to see these, you're going to notice that, that there's nobody that looks like you on stage, that there's nobody that looks like you behind the scenes. Also, you're going to notice that they're not going to be using a lot of the music that you listen to. One thing that I noticed is that almost every time that there was a song that was recorded by a black artist, it was redone by a white artist. Oh, Almost every single time. Anytime that there was a Beyonce song, it was redone with a white voice. The soul was taken out of it. And it, this happened, it kept happening so, t- so many times, and I only realized it this past weekend, but it's almost like people try to erase black culture to a certain extent. Even though they're taking the music, even though they're taking the rhythms, even though they're taking these things, they're trying to do it as much as they can to make it seem like we were never there. So that, that's kind of the thing that I find in those particular areas, because what the thing is, everybody will want to do things as a black person, like the skill set, the singing, but they won't give the honor or the jobs to those particular people, which is what I find is such a frustrating thing that happens. Right. Where it's 100% appropriation instead of appreciation. Yeah. Yes. Boom. Yeah. Yes. You, you you recently wrote this great piece for Dance Teacher about your experiences at dance competitions. And you described one piece that you saw, you described it as a modern day blackface performance. Yes. And we'll link to that story in the show notes. I hope people read it. Um, yes. But can you talk a little more generally about how that type of like the modern day blackface things that you've been seeing, how do they relate to these larger dance world debates that we're having about appropriation versus appreciation? Thank you, because that's why I wrote that article. Because it's not just about the competition thing. It's about a larger, it's like a much larger scale than that. Because if we can teach people at a young age that this kind of action is wrong, then they will continue through their lives thinking that that is wrong. Mm -hmm. So what happens is, so what happened was, I saw some of these numbers and what they were doing was that they were stealing from a particular culture, either their generational pain when it comes to uh, racism or sexual issues, they take that and then they dress them up as those particular people and then they do a dance about it. Mm -hmm. The thing is, if they are not of that culture, they are only using that culture's ideas to create a number on stage. And what happens is a lot of, because uh, I had, I've been having a lot of talks with studio owners and dancers, uh, choreographers, and they say that they're trying to give honor to those people. But the thing is, a lot of these people will never speak out on social media or speak out in any public setting in favor of those people. 
So the thing is, if you're really trying to honor somebody, or if you're really trying to honor a culture, you will be talking about that more often. You will be talking about how Black Lives Matter. You should be talking about how to stop aging hate. You should be talking about how uh, we need to protect those people. But if you only use them and their styles and that use their um, use their likeness in a as a caricature, then that's when I call it. I'm like, no, like let's be honest about what this is. You're using them to create a number to stand out in a competition. And now you're trying to backpedal. And also it's like, why don't you go from your own experiences in your life? Why don't you perform things that are important to you? Why don't you perform some of the pain that you have felt? Why do you have to go over to another culture and take their pain and use it as yours and also put it under your idea of what their pain is? You don't know what their pain is. So why are you feeling like it's okay for you to do that? And the other thing is a lot of people have never been told no. A lot mm-hmm. of people feel I can say anything. I can do whatever I want. We have to be able to say no. We have to be able to say no. And we have to call people out. And I don't mean like everything has to be a social media post or anything like that. But what I do have to say is people have to say, no, you can't do that. Or this is not right. And it also segues into quote unquote classical dance and music theater dance. And even from uh, my experience in college, I remember people putting on blackface to be in numbers. I remember a teacher saying that you needed to draw your eyes a certain way to look oriental, which is terrible, which is terrible and very offensive, but they had no idea. They had no idea that it was offensive at all because nobody else ever said anything. I think the world had needed a timeout to be like, oh, this is what's happening and this is what has been happening and this is how we need to change. Yeah. And I think in a lot of these like white dominated dance spaces, Mm -hmm. a lot of people sort of assume like, oh, we're artists. We have a progressive worldview. Like we get this whole diversity thing. And it's like, you know, being socially liberal doesn't mean you've taken a hard look at your own biases and the ways that you might be contributing to this broken culture. Like if your greatest engagement with an entire culture and its pain is using it as a hook to hang a dance on. Yeah, that's not it. And you said it perfectly, a hook to hang a dance on. Exactly. Um, In the Dance Teacher essay, you also talked about how difficult it can be to speak up in these environments where you're one of the only people of color, especially if you're discussing race specifically. Yeah. And then you also said that you walk this tightrope in those kinds of situations, because if you are the only person of color in the room, there's sometimes this unspoken expectation that you will be the one to identify diversity, equity, and inclusion issues. Yeah. So what needs to change to stop that burden from falling over and over again on dancers of color in these predominantly white spaces? Yeah, I'm so happy that you brought that up because I was in a dance rehearsal for uh, an upcoming project recently and the choreographer or the director of that particular number said, if I say anything racist or sexist, please don't go away being angry about it. Let me know. So right there, that let me know that the homework has not been done. Mm -hmm. That lets me know that people think that they're doing homework, but it's not happening. Because the thing is, that automatically made it my job to police them rather than them policing themselves. So an abdication of responsibility. Exactly. Still pushing the responsibility on somebody else so that that person can be completely free 
that person can be completely free in what they do, but now I'm the one that has to uh, look out for them. And that's actually also happened in another studio that I was working that I was working at. They were worried about one of the numbers being um, racially insensitive, and they reached out to me. And the thing is, I'm like, I am a fellow teacher. I am a fellow choreographer in your school. It is not my responsibility to be the the advocacy director for an entire organization. But that's what people do. Rather than doing the work themselves and really think about what am I doing? Am I putting forth something that could possibly be racist? Or am I really looking at myself honestly and thinking, just like you said, these are my biases that I have. This is the the lens that I've been looking through. Do I need to change that lens? I'm going to push the burden onto people of color, which is that's what America has always been pushing the burden onto somebody else or taking advantage of somebody else. So we've got to get to that point where people, um, people do their own homework. We've done enough. People of color have done enough. It's time for uh, white cis people to stand up and be like, okay, I'm going to do this. and I'm going to work towards making sure that I don't create a space that is of that way. And speaking as a person that, I mean, a lot of my career has been the, the one person of color in, uh, in an ensemble. And the things that you hear sometimes on a regular everyday basis, you know it's wrong and you know that it's racist and full of microaggressions, but we've been conditioned to just take it. Mm-hmm. We've been in condition to absorb all of that uh, negative energy, all of that racism. We just like lock it inside and then we release it when we get to see each other again, when we get to other people of color or we're having to be like, can you believe so-and-so said that? Whereas now it's like, I feel like we're moving into another world where we're not going to, we don't have to take that anymore. And so I think that this respite from performing in a way has been good because it's made people really, really think about what, um, what they have to put up with. Because I know, in my opinion, I think that things have completely changed. Completely changed, as in the mindset of being able to speak up. Here's hoping. Here's hoping that's one of the silver linings of this yeah. like pandemic pause is just brain space to to process all of that. Yeah. Um, speaking of pandemic pause, I'm going to make the understatement of the century, which is that it has been a strange and difficult year uh, for yeah. dance artists. Yeah. Um, so how have you made it through? Like what's kept you going both professionally and then also just from a mental health perspective? Yeah. Um, professionally, the fact that... Uh, teaching has come back into my life. Like I've always been a teacher. I've always been, as soon as I got out of college, I started teaching at a theater that was uh, right around the corner from me, Lyric Theater of Oklahoma. So I started teaching there right away. And then when I came to the city, I started teaching uh, at Broadway Dance Center and Steps all the time. And then once my performing career picked up, I started doing that. But then I would always like teach anytime that I got the chance to, or judge a dance competition, so the fact that that has come back into my life, into my soul, the, the thought of being able to see people change, see people grow, and being able to see the joy of people getting steps or even the frustration people feel when they can't get a step, but then they finally get a step. I love that kind of thing. And I love being able to be somebody that you might not normally see teaching a class. Because a lot of the times, especially at, uh, in these schools in New York, you'll mainly get white people. 
which I think it's so important and not to discount their ability at all in any way, shape or form. But I think it's important that people see people of different colors, teaching classes, people of different sexual orientations, teaching classes, so that it gives somebody else somebody to look up to. So that is the main thing that, it, that I've gotten professionally during this time. Um, mentally, I would say it's been uh, the amount of time that I've spent with my family and friends. That is the main thing that I found um, that's getting me through mentally wise. I visited a friend in uh, Pennsylvania. I stayed with her family and I was like, I've been alone for quite a bit of time. And then getting to be around her and her family and everything, it was, oh, <laughs> I had the best time. And then I got home to St. Louis and I got to be with my family, which I spent almost four months with them, which would never happen, which would never happen. <laughs> So getting, that's kind of what's gotten me through. And then coming back to New York, mentally what's helped me is being in my own space and then also just being around other artists. Oh, just like one of the first times that I went into a studio again with some of my friends, it was, um, it was like something just like came back to life. And it's, uh, it, I think it's a thing that we quite often take for granted, but um, I definitely will not anymore. The thought that I didn't, take 5 billion classes before all of this started. I mean, uh, if I could have. Yeah, that energetic connection that only happens in a studio with other dancers. Uh, it's just, just like the other people. I keep thinking about um, my classes that I used to take with Max Stone and Jana Hicks. Oh, their classes. I just remember being um, taking their classes and then seeing people go through emotional journeys while they were taking their classes. That's one thing that I miss so much. And people that aren't dancers don't quite understand. But when you are really uh, living in a piece that somebody said that day, that you can feel like you can release all of your emotions, there's nothing like it. It's like uh, when I used to take a Derek Grant's class too. His class was just, you would work so hard and you would laugh and you would have... I mean, it was just, it was, it was everything. So to be able to be a part of that for somebody else, hopefully be a part of that for somebody else is just, I, I love it. Dance class as catharsis. That's yeah. Like, yep. Um, I'd like to talk about Marcella, about your alter yes, ego. Yes. Because she is wonderful. Um, who is she? How did she come to be? Tell us more. Yes. Uh, would you like to meet her too? She can yes. come. I'll talk yeah. to her a little bit about, uh, talk to her a little bit. Computer. So, oh, listeners, he's getting the wig. <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah. I have a wig. I have a wig wall too. Anybody that comes into my house, uh, always will end up in a wig at one point. It's. I mean, <laughs> it's going to happen no matter what. So, uh, Marcella started. <laughs> Marcella started in Hello Dolly. So the guys' dressing room in Hello Dolly. Robert Hartwell was auditioning for. Um, I think it was Moulin Rouge, and he had to have a wig, and so he was like putting all of these wigs on the table, on the dressing room table. And then of course, like a whole bunch of gays in the dressing room, everybody was snatching these wigs and putting them on. And I put this wig on and it all of a sudden just morphed. As soon as I put this wig on, I started talking and acting in a completely different way. And that's when Marcella was born. And so I started to bring her out every time that we were in like a long weekend or if like people needed some like, if everybody, if everybody needs a little boost, 
all of a sudden. It's like she would just come out. And so what I would do is sometimes I would put her on because I was the horse. I was the pivotal role of the horse, of the horse's rear end in Hello, Dolly. I was going to ask, which end were you? <laughs> yes. Oh, yes. I got to see uh, the beautiful side of Ryan Worsing every day. So, um, and so what I would do is sometimes I would put the wig on underneath it and then I would just pop out as this character. So, um, so yeah, that's pretty much how it went. Oh my goodness. Yes. It is oh so nice gosh. to meet you. Hi, Marcella. Oh goodness. Is... I, I was not prepared for an interview today, but I'm just so happy <laughs> to be here. You look gorgeous. Oh my goodness. Stop. Keep going. Marcella, tell us about your life in theater. Oh my goodness, yes, I am one of those, what they call Broadway starlets. Uh, so my Broadway debut was in Hello, Dolly, as the pivotal role of the host, Patricia. And um, I got to meet so many people, and they were so happy to meet me because I'm a star, as they say. Um, uh, Miss Bette Midler loved me, yes. And uh, Mr. David Hyde Pierce, he was a very big fan of mine. He loved me so much. And oh, Bernadette Peters, she's like my cousin. Oh. <laughs> it, was, it was it was so wonderful, and I even interviewed Kate Baldwin. Oh, Miss Kate Baldwin, she's just the most glorious voice on this earth. <laughs> agreed, agreed. Congratulations on all your successes, Marcella. Oh, thank you so much. Goodbye, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for humoring me. That was oh, great. of course. I love it when I can bring her out. <laughs> um. Richard, we're just about out of time. Thank you so much for sharing your perspective with us, for your candor. Deeply appreciate it. Can you talk about what's on your creative horizon that people should keep an eye out for and also where they can follow you to keep keep up with everything you're doing? Good. Uh, so you can follow me at Richard Riaz, R-I-C-H-A-R-D-R-I-A-Z on Instagram and uh, Twitter. So a couple of things that I'm working on right now. I'm working on um, a story for Dance Magazine. And it's focused on the relationship with uh, choreographers and dancers, mainly choreographers and dancers. Uh, and it's kind of about how this new world has created a space that dancers, I feel, should be able to speak up a little bit more when it comes to racism or when it comes to abusive relationships that some choreographers can set up. Some choreographers can set up a very specific um, slightly abusive uh, relationship right at the very beginning of a rehearsal. And it's one thing to be hard on somebody to try to bring something out of them. And there's another thing about trying to break somebody's soul so, mm -hmm. so that they can be, that they can do your work or whatever like that. And so that's one of the things I'm going to talk about and how to set up one of those relationships that dancers will keep wanting to work for people. Because there's some people that dancers want to work for because they know that they'll keep working. And then there's some choreographers that people wanna work with because they make you feel good. They make you feel good and they get a good product out of you after, even through rehearsal. And I think that's the most important thing. And you feel comfortable saying, you know what, I don't know about this. Also, um, Gibney Dance Studio just uh, awarded me with a um, rehearsal studio space. And so right now I'm trying to get things together to work on slight reel for my choreography because I kind of feel like after this particular time, I found that that's where um, I'll always be a performer, but I, I kind of feel like that is where the world is taking me and I want to be able to move tap forward as well or be one of the people that helps to move tap forward because I think it's kind of becoming a lost art form 
in theater and especially like the skill level of it. So I, what I really want to do is just honor tap, like I was saying before, and try to bring it back to more Broadway shows because it can actually tell a story within a show. So yeah. that's what I mean. It can be the main event. It should be the yeah. main event. Yeah. Oh, looking forward to seeing and reading all of that. Um, thank you again, Richard. Real pleasure talking with you. Getting to know you a little bit. Thanks. And Marcella. Yes. <laughs> she, she loves you. The Dance Edit Podcast is a product of Dance Media, publisher of Dance Magazine, Dance Spirit, Point, Dance Teacher, Dance Business Weekly, and the Dance Edit Newsletter. Our hosts are Courtney Escoyne, Margaret Fuhrer, Lydia Murray, and Cadence Neenan. Our music is by Celestine, with special thanks to Broadway Dance Center for helping us record those footfall sounds. Find out more about the Dance Edit and subscribe to our daily newsletter at thedanceedit.com. <laughs>